Welcome to The Sound of the Hound, a podcast about the early days of recorded sound. My name's James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. And in this series, we look at the technology, the characters and the stories behind the invention of recorded music over 120 years ago. We trace the pioneers. The dreamers. The adventurers. Who risked life and limb in their quest to bring music to the masses. And who embarked on extraordinary feats of daring do in their mission to capture sound. These people ultimately changed the way that we listen and, incidentally, spawned a multi-billion pound industry in the process. Uh, Let's explain a bit about who we are. I'm James Hall. I'm a music journalist and author. And I'm Dave Holly, and I'm a long-time music industry exec. Uh, I used to run Abbey Road Studios, and I'm now a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust. I wouldn't consider either as uh, particularly gramophone geeks. Or phonograph fanatics, no. But, but what we are is obsessed with this extraordinary period of time. Uh, our episodes will feature a range of characters, but one character you'll hear about again and again is a man called Fred Geisberg, who was effectively employee number one in the UK recording industry and opened Britain's first recording studio in Covent Garden in 1898. Yeah, he really was the maestro. Yeah, he was the Steve Jobs of Victorian London. The Simon Cowell with a handlebar moustache. <laughs> So why is this podcast called The Sound of the Hound? Because we're doing it with the help of the EMI Archive Trust, which is a vast music and technology archive based in Hayes. The EMI Trust celebrates the history of recorded sound and the work of the famous EMI group of companies, which include the Foundation Company, the Gramophone Company, and also HMV, his master's voice. Which is why we've named the podcast The Sound of the Hound after Nipper, the dog in the famous HMV logo. This is The Sound of the Hound. Today's episode is a little bit different to the ones we've recorded so far, which were looking at a series of stories from the early days of recording industry. Today, we're actually looking at a fictional representation of that. It's um, a book called The Industry of Human Happiness, and it's written by somebody called James Hall, which sounds remarkably... Like you, James. It is. It's me. Just as background, first got to know James's name as a writer for the Daily Telegraph, writing about music and other things. But then when I was, and I am still, a, a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust, we saw this book, The Industry of U- Human Happiness, was being published. And we knew that James had done some research at our archive for it. That's when I finally got to meet him. And this podcast is sort of the end result of it's that. the end result of that. How did you get interested in this period of history? It was in quite a roundabout way. As you say, I was, I was working for The Telegraph, and I still do write about music for them. But at the time, I was on staff writing about something slightly different. And one weekend, went to a gig. It was, I suppose it was what you call a, a world music mashup. It was put on by a record label called Honest John, who were based in Ladbroke Grove. And they had musicians from all around the world playing. Fatumata Diawara from Mali, and Tony Allen, who was a fellow Kuti's drummer, and, and drummer in The Good, The Bad and, and The, the Queen. And The Queen, exactly. And slightly inevitably, Damon Albarn was there kind of curating it and, and flee from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. People from uh, South African techno DJs. And it was quite a chaotic, quite enjoyable evening. But it was outside that gig afterwards. There was a, a trestle table of, of CDs and I picked, that, that Honest John had put together. And I picked one up and it was called Sprigs of Time. 78s from the EMI archive and on the picture on the, on the front with these was a factory a very early vinyl factory and the CD comprised of songs from around the world from 
Japan and India and, and, and well, everywhere, frankly, about 20 or 30 tracks recorded in the early part, in the, in the early 1900s, basically. And these were the, the kind of the blueprints, the founding recordings of, of the music industry. Uh, bizarrely, I did the deal when I was um, working for EMI no. what, for the to license Honest John to be able to make those products. They made several <laughs> uh, CDs at that time. Well, there you go. And they're beautiful they're products. Lovely. Um, it was reading the, the sleeve notes for this CD, this little booklet, and it talked about these pioneers, these slightly crazy people who lugged cases of equipment and acid and zinc plates around the world in order to capture sound. And there was one sentence that leapt out. Travel was routinely uh, arduous. Locations were regularly impromptu, sometimes dangerous. And I just thought, okay, there are stories here. The characters that did this learned how to capture sound, which is such a normal thing to hear now. But at the time, no one did it. And they travelled around the world and they, yeah, that just sparked something. And I thought this is a... That's definitely a novel in it. And that, so I just started researching and researching and researching, which is how I then went to visit the Trust in, in Hayes. And uh, your colleague Joe Hughes very kindly let me in and showed me around. What a place. I mean, rooms and rooms of old gramophones from, from the ages, Scots from the Antarctic and French ones made of records made of chocolate and, and every kind of wind-up machine. And I just thought this was an industry, the industry of human happiness. This, this is... This created something massive. I worked for EMI, and one of the jobs I did was look after running the archives around the world, but the main ones in Hayes. A trust was put in place to, to kind of look after and preserve and, and make available to the public assets that really, they're not just the history of EMI or its, its predecessor company, the Gramophone Company. They're the history of the UK recording industry, and they're terribly important, and, and, and the trust kind of oversees that. And it's fabulous, and... When, when I got the job looking after the archives, I remember going down there the first day. And it's, it's, it's part a working archive slash library for, for you know, contemporary music and, and well, all music over the last 120 years. But it still works. You know, if, if they're doing a catalogue reissue, they get the tapes up from the um, archive at Hayes and, and, and remake compilations and remaster them and whatever like like this one like yes. the sprigs of time and, and the honest yeah. john cd which i must tell you the name is called sprigs of time 78 from the emi archive but when i started working the archives i started learning some of the stories of these people yeah. and we've talked in previous podcasts about um fred guidesberg and um sinclair darby yeah. and emile berliner just as you the penny dropped and i thought this is a perfect novel or isn't it tv series and well it, and all I can say is, you've written the novel. <laughs> I've written the novel. It's, Damn, I wanted to write the novel. <laughs> I, it, it actually started as biographical fiction. I wanted to do the Fred Geisberg story as a novel. But there are various challenges with, with doing that, in that you've got to obviously stick to what happened. And, and I just, there, there were too many gaps in the timeline for me to, maybe I should, maybe I should have stuck with Fred, but I've actually, I actually came up with two, two fictional characters based very loosely on Fred and Sinclair and added a murder element and added romance. And I had, because it was fiction, I had license to go off in even sort of crazier directions than these guys actually did. But Fred, and Fred was very much the blueprint for my protagonist, Max. Um, very similar people, ambitious, very eccentric, driven, single-minded, not afraid to put themselves in positions of, of danger in pursuit of what they wanted. And that was one of the that was one of the things that I thought 
is a great element for a novel. It's this, uh, it's this fact that you're in a world where, because recorded sound doesn't exist, you've got all these vested interests who don't want it to exist. Theatre owners, sheet music writers, you know, they, they have interests to protect. And you're in London in the late 1890s. Which is exciting which in itself. Is, what a city you've got. It's becoming very modern. But it's still only 10 years after Jack the Ripper killed people in, in the East End. You're on the, at this cusp. And Victoria's still on the throne, but only just. But things like and the telephone are the coming telephone, through. The um, motor car was about to happen. The, the ink pen. The incandescent light bulb. Electricity. Yeah. The undergrounds were being dug at yeah, the time. Yeah, the 1880s, the underground, yeah. So you've got this city that's partly, well, it's not partly, is Victorian, but also... The sewer system. The sewer system, Basiljet. Yeah. But it's becoming very modern. Yes. And in the next 20 years would, you know, really take a leap into... Like, I guess London has moved from, I think, 1801, it's got 1 million people. 1901, it's got 8 million people. Exactly. It's biggest city in the world by miles, and... and all this new technology piling in. What a backdrop for a what story. What a backdrop. What a backdrop. And, you know, I was a child of the of the 80s, so grew up with the the VHS Betamax format wars. BBC B Spectrum. Do you know what I mean? I, I grew up when, and I've always loved those, those format wars. And, of course, with the gramophone, you had the phonograph. You had two very different kinds of, of machine. The gramophone obviously plays flat discs, and yep. the phonograph plays... Cylinders like th- that rotate like a rabbit on a spit. And phonograph was invented by Edison. Edison. Thomas Edison. <laughs> His name it's, went blank then. Thomas early. Edison. Thomas Edison. Yeah. Um, and of course, Berliner did the. Did the and Berliner part. did the disc. So you've got yeah. these two competing technologies. Tick. You've got a fascinating time in history, London, late Victorian London. Tick. You've got this incredible invention. And we know, the reader now knows, that it worked and that it spawned this four billion pound industry and changed the way we. We act and listen. I mean, you can now listen to any song on the, with the touch of a button on your phone. Yeah. But no one knew that at the time. No, if, if, if That's any, the jeopardy, isn't it? You if anybody had downloaded Spotify in the 1890s, yes. they'd have put it on and there'd have been not a single piece of music available. <laughs> there you go. Great, we've got the app, but no music. But imagine this sort of Victorian... I mean, my character Fred, for example, um, you know, trying to convince someone that you can listen to music now in your home at any time you want on a flat disc made from crushed beetle shells by putting it on this rotating... T- you know, you would have thought, go, go away, go yeah. away. Why would I want to do that? Trot on, sir. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because these people were... Yes, they were absolutely pioneers. And, um, and so that, 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 in a very broad... Yeah. Is, is the basis of my novel. It's, it, it's the format wars, and it's, it's, the, it's the launch of the industry in a basement in Covent Garden. How did you research it? What, what research did you do? I know you came to the archives. I came to the, um, yeah. Just a lot, too much. There's this thing in, in, in creative writing called the iceberg theory, where you show 5%, or you should show 5% of your research on the top, and then 95% is just implied in the strength of what you... And I certainly did the, <laughs> I certainly did the full 100%. I joined the RGS, the Royal Geographical Society, to look into... Um, the expeditions that that happened at the time did an awful lot of research on that because my characters go around the world, or they well go part around the world to record. There's a big scene in Russia where they go, which if you listen to our podcast, might yes might, might remind you of um, somebody else's trip to Russia. There's an accident with some acid. My I don't want to say too much, but Rusty, my uh, the, the, my second protagonist, 
protagonist falls foul of a, of a, of a vat of acid on a recording trip. I spoke to the archivist at Fortnum and Mason. Why? Who very, well, who very kindly talked me through how people in that era lived, how they provided themselves with food, how ah, they because ate. because there's no the frozen food, uh, well, there's absolutely, no absolutely. How, how dehydrated food you can take with you at that point. Yes, so she talked, which was brilliant, she, there were these things called chop boxes, which were wooden boxes with, um, with a week's supply of food in them. Everything jellied in glasses and a few tins. And, people and tins would, again would be a technology around, yeah. that, that, that's just coming into exactly. being at that point. And people would, would go on an expedition and they'd, they'd order a chop box per week per head. And what it meant was that you could, you all had the same food, but in the course of a week you could slightly vary your menu because obviously yeah. eating the same thing day in, day out was very boring. Um, so they'd arrange for these boxes to be sent out to wherever they were and it would be their own little sort of portable larder for seven days and then they'd move on. But it was, li- it was little things like that. But I also started, I read everything about the real recording pioneers, Fred Geisberg, Sinclair Darby, the people you mentioned. Any, any particular books that you, you, you enjoyed? Yes, there was there, there were plenty, actually. There was one called, and um, there was one from the Science Museum called Talking Machines, oh, wow. which w- it, 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 it's not that thick and it's illustrated, but it just talks to different countries and how they came up with different kinds of gramophone. So you've got Deutsche Grammophone, you've got, you've got the Grammophone Company in America, you've got the offshoot in London, which, of course, is what all this is about. Pathé in France, and uh, what other books? What's the one we've both read, which isn't sitting in front of me now, that's absolutely brilliant? By Nor- um, Northrop. Northrop Moore. Which, it, which, there's two versions of it, isn't it? But it's basically a, the, the biography of, of Geisberg. Sa- yes, it's, it's Geisberg's Sound Revolutions. Sound Revolutions. Is and one. Then there was an earlier version as well. Yeah. Which is fantastic. There's Geisberg's diaries, which have been published, yeah. which, of course, he wrote 30 years after the event, so they're brilliantly exaggerated, we think. And, in fact, the originals of those diaries are at the EMI archive. At the EMI archive. Yeah. So there was this rich, just this incredibly rich, and by listening to the to the songs, they still exist. Yeah, you know, if you if you, if you want to hear, you know, if you're proof of just how out there these people were, that there's a, a singer called Gora Jan from uh, India who they recorded, I believe, in 1902. Just listening to those scratchy and seeing pictures of them doing it with this ridiculous amount of equipment, surrounded by locals who had no idea what they were looking at. There was a machine with a huge protruding horn with someone singing into it and lots of guys with handlebar moustaches you know doing thumbs up and dipping the master disc in fats of acid and then i mean just crazy stuff i mean we've talked about it before but the amount of you know we're we're um recording into a device that's probably about four inches by two inches which i can carry in a pocket microphones attached to it slightly heavier but but um they carried packages and packages, cases and cases of cases. equipment, didn't they? And they had to disguise them as other things, to scientific equipment, customs philosophical equipment, because yeah. they didn't think, uh, didn't know whether it was legal or not to go into a country and steal their sounds. <laughs> um, but one of the one of my um, the rabbit holes of research I went down was was about the first ever recording studio in the UK, which was in Covent Garden in the in a hotel on Maiden Lane, which is this cobbled street behind behind the Strand. And it turns out that the gramophone company opened the first studio there in 1898. I mean, as discussed, they went to Rules next door and they met people like Cyril Lamont. And, um, but yes, yeah, so, so it was finding it, that it's, building. Is Cyril Lamont in your, 
in your story? There's a Cyril Lamont esque character. character. Yes. Yeah. Del- Delilah is she, is she Green. Australian? She's not Australian. Ah. She's an Eastender. But it, it, every discovery sparked another another thought. Yeah. And it's such a rich world, isn't it? Yes. It's amazing. So yeah, so so this uh, the, the the original studio is now a pizza restaurant in Covent Garden, which has no, or <laughs> hopefully soon will, yeah. has no. Um, well, you just walk past it. You don't know there's the, anything the, the, there. There's no sign. There's no mention of the fact that this is where, in 1898, the first re- recording studio opened. Nothing. I, James just laughed there because. Um, I did. You, I went, you went a bit mad for this world, didn't you? Not, not only have you written the novel, but uh, you became a campaigner. I went a bit mad for it. I, I, yes. What, what have you done? Well, if I, so the book came out, and I thought it is bonkers. It is just odd, is that this pizza restaurant has no markings of its of its past. So yeah. I started a campaign to get a um, a commemorative plaque put up on the outside of the of the building. Um, got heavily into the whole plaque thing, blue plaques, green plaques, and. Did a crowdfunding campaign, and we've now raised enough money to have a. There's going to be a, a, a Westminster Council green plaque put up on the side of the first ever recording studio, which is thrilling. And I have to thank the trust, the EMI Archive Trust, put up half the money, which is very nice of them. And it's happening. Our pleasure. <laughs> and it's happening hopefully um, very soon. Now being October 2019, so hopefully November we'll unveil this this plaque, and there'll be, there'll be a permanent. Uh, a reminder on this building of of, of, of its importance. I, I, I think that's amazing. One question just struck me: Does the landlord know anything about this? <laughs> <That was laughs> You're just going to stick this plaque no, on their wall? The, that was half the battle: was tracking down the landlord. Yeah. And luckily, through a contact of mine from work, actually years ago, I found out who he was. There's an investment management company that owns the building, and and he turns out to be a huge music fan. And I sent him this long email, expecting either no reply or a no, explaining, and he came back to me and he said, um, "Wow, I, I, I had no idea. Yes, please, of course, we'll give you permission." They even put put some money in themselves, which oh, is brilliant. which is great. And he loves music, and he just and he he just said this this such a this is such a different project to what I normally deal with in my day to day life, which is probably rent yields and investor returns and, and the rest of it. So no, that was that was fantastic to have them on board. It's, it's um, great. So a big um, shout out to the Royal London Investment Management. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but it, but it's great. I've, you know, I'm now a music publisher. I run a music publishing company, and whenever I take somebody uh, out for dinner to and and want to impress them, I always take them to Rules Restaurant, and then we walk along Maiden Lane, and I stop in front of that pizza restaurant, and I say, "That's where it all began." Love it. it you know. The music industry, the modern music industry, began at that place yeah. when that recording yeah. equipment was delivered from America and Geisberg yeah. tempted people in from Rules, from Rules, and um, and made them sing. I'd love a night in Rules. I would love. I've never been. Apparently, their cocktail list is pretty still fantastic. We should go. Let's do it. Why don't we, we should do an go. With, yes, absolutely. An Actually, why don't we go and get very drunk in Rules? <laughs> That could be fun. It will be fun. So, yeah, so that was the genesis for the book. And, and that, how long I, did it take you to write? Five years. From from the first sentence? From the first sentence. What with rewrites and life and babies and yeah. everything that comes with all that. And it was just, yeah, jobs, work, you know, just so it was sort of eking out time. I did a creative writing course. Uh, which we, was, we, which, which one? Uh, it was with Curtis Brown, who the literary agency, which yes. was fantastic. And there, there, we, we, the, the, about two years before, I said, 
brilliant writer called Jesse Burton did the same course and wrote the miniaturist, which obviously yes. did. So we were all we just you know it was brilliant to get on the course, and I loved it. And that, that I think seven of us are now published. Oh wow! Authors from from fifteen on the which is which is quite a good yeah. hit rate. And we met up every Monday for I think every three years. What to, after to, the course? After the course, to, yeah, to to, to 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 swap extracts and critique each other. Just tips for aspiring writers <laughs> out there. Um, how, how did you get a book published? Ditch your prologue. <laughs> Ditch your prologue. What, what do you mean? Everyone wants to do a prologue. Setting the scene. And everyone, I, I had a whole prologue in India. There was a recording trip to India that, that, um, that Max did. And I, I spent, oh, the hours I spent on this prologue, refining and rewriting. And the first thing my agent said was, you know, ditch it. And it's horrible because you really think you've got a great... To me, it was the opening credits before the story kicked off. But novels don't work like that. You've got to, they say, don't warm up your engines. Cut just to the chase. Straight in there. Yeah. Um, perseverance. I mean, I'm so proud of this book. But it, it was, I got a fair few rejections, as everyone does. And you just got to keep going. Keep going. Because someone somewhere will love it. And um, don't be too precious, I suppose. Because editing your own work is so difficult. When you think you've got a completed product... And then the expert, your agent, your publisher, their editor, will say, actually, I think you need to do this or add this or take this out. It's really hard to take and it's very hard to do. But you've got to do it. Just refine, refine, refine. It's part of your baby. It's part of your baby, you know. But you've got to trust How dare you? How dare you? But the thrill, you know, seeing the proofs and seeing the cover and seeing it in the bookshops and it's just it's just the best feeling it's brilliant did everybody yeah. get it for christmas oh yeah your friends oh <laughs> yes oh yes and they will forevermore wait what period does it cover is, is, is it is it does it go back to the early days or it's from the very so it starts in 1898 so it, it with the establishment of the first studio in london my character max and then there are a series of flashbacks back to his childhood because the story is is basically about him and his cousin rusty who are very very close but something comes between them and they become rivals. Uh, so it's basically 1898 to, well, f- for the next year, basically. So it ends, it ends sort of 1899. And then, there, as I said, there are flashbacks. And at the end, there's a flash forward to, uh, to the 1930s. But I wanted to focus on the very small, on the, on the very early days, because the villain is a theatre owner who doesn't want his business interrupted by this newfangled gramophone technology. And and I wanted to add a murder mystery what, what, element because yeah, what would he have been worried about? Just that people would stop stop buying theatre tickets. I mean, if you if you no longer have to go, and this was me, this was me extrapolating. But I, yeah. I figured if I was a very very powerful impresario, owned half of London's theatres, and suddenly people didn't have to buy a theatre ticket, a very expensive theatre ticket, in some cases, um, to listen to music, then they'd stop coming. Well, I, I guess this is like the episode we did on Caruso, where he was loath to to yes. sign up to record yes. with um, with Fred because he w- he was worried it would affect the way that he was perceived as a as a, a theatre well, performer, exactly. a concert Absolutely. performer, because that's where he'd have made his huge return. People yeah. don't like change. I mean, a, a, a modern analogy is how the record industry, and you were part of it, so forgive me, was so flat-footed and scared of streaming when it first started because they thought it would stop people buying physical product and of course it did but ne- then they got on board latterly and now it's everything i mean streaming's that um but it was very like that it's funny how, how the history of technology kind of repeats doesn't Di- it? disrupts the status quo yeah. time and time again i mean disrupts is a very good word these guys were the original disruptors 
They yeah, were because the mu- music industry in those days would have been about live performance, and then about people performing at home. So yeah. sheet, sheet music sheet, yes. and that. So instrument makers would have been a huge part of the uh, music industry. Sheet yeah. music would have been that was the role of a publisher. That was exactly that was exactly, exactly the role of the. Pub- there were no no ways of. You know, you look at it now, and it, there were no records, so you didn't get performance and mechanical income. Yeah. There was no films to sync. Well, there were films, but there were no talking films for 30 more years. So, yeah, all you had was sheet music, and then the performers made their money from getting up on stage and belting, and belting out the music. Out, yeah. yeah. No, this was complete disruption, which, again, I think is fascinating, you know, how a technology comes along. And, of course, when every, whenever a new technology comes along, people... People don't like change. Yeah. I always think of the fountain pen example. You know, you went from dipping a dipping a quill in ink to suddenly having having the ink in the cylinder. Yeah. Now, to us, it sounds like a no-brainer, but imagine at the time, and th- buy this thing. So it's got ink. The ink. Where's the ink? It's on the inside. You're not going to get ink on you. You're not going to get ink on you. And they take they take years to refine. But you know, these. I, are, I won't possibly want one of those. No. Why would I want one of those? It works. I do remember when the smartphone came out, the Apple iPhone came yeah. out, just thinking, who on earth would want one of those <laughs> with all of those things in it? Q, yeah. 10 years later, well, yeah. 12 years later, everybody's got one. Well, Mr. Billions of people Mr. got one. Mr. Mr. Parker and his ink pen, or, or whoever invented the, you know, they're up there laughing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, it's a, and it's it's a that, behavior lags behind technology, doesn't it? It's, it's that level of, of, of innovation, really. It's, it's a smartphone. You know, suddenly having some... A, a self-contained writing instrument yeah. that writes in permanent ink yeah. in your pocket. In your pocket. You never need to carry ink. You never need to find an ink well. Yeah. Um, and that's a very... similar s- to the smartphone. Suddenly you've got a computer in your pocket. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's very innovative. I remember how... The never, when, never really thought about when the, I the ink phone before. In, ink pen before. Ink pen. Well, I mean, that's a, bit, and that's, a, that's a great example, actually. It's a very simple example. Also, when, when the iPod came out, the fact that I mean, I spent weekends transferring my CD collection onto this little thing the size of a cigarette carton, and that that was extraordinary. That was revolution. And then you could you could buy tracks from Apple. This you know, and now of course, the iPod's dead in the water. Yeah, that was yeah, only 10, 15 15, years ago. Ten or fifteen year yeah. curve. And now and it out. looks like it looks. Like I've got the old one with it with a kind of clicky white. Yeah. And now it's like a relic. It's 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 extraordinary. And this is the Victorian version. Of that. That level of disruption. Exactly. Yeah. Suddenly, you didn't have to pay whatever it was to go to a, an opera house. Yeah. Or stand in a sweaty musical. Or stand in a sweaty and musical. And have cabbages. And hear it once. You know, yeah. you know what, what it's like when you hear a great song? You want to hear it again, straight yes. away. And if yes. you've heard Mary Lloyd, whoever, belting it out in yeah. the musical, that was it. It's gone. You'd yeah. have to try and remember it in your, in your mind. Suddenly, having recorded... Music you could put play over and over again. Yeah. Suddenly, you can annoy your parents by playing <laughs> a song over and over again, which I'm sure we've all done. Exactly. So that's in a very roundabout way was the was the was the genesis and the story of the book. Anything that you particularly learnt during your research and writing of the book that that stayed in your mind? Just how bloody minded these people were, but how right they were as well. And it's a real, you know, just they just didn't give up. They, they they're, they're brave people, aren't they? I mean, they're they're, they're dealing with technology. You know, we talked about it in other episodes about the acid that was used. Yeah. In, the, in fact, we talked about the acid um, 
falling through falling the roof through the, in a, in yes, a, in a hotel. It, it, in yeah. seems to be quite a similar um, story <laughs> in, in in your book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a great story. But you know that was brave. They're going to they're going to the back of beyond. Well, uh, uh, Fred with the Tartars. It you know. Yeah. Uh, um, yes, they 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 didn't really care. They they just went for it. And, and I think we're so risk averse now. You know, people people just wouldn't do that. And and, and even. You know, they're they're as part of a startup. They're they're making something that doesn't exist yeah. and trying to make it useful for people, yeah. which they signi- su- you know succeeded magnificently. Eventually, um, yeah. Eventually, eventually. Um, yeah, yeah. I can see that coming through the book. You know, it's a real sense of pioneer, quite rough and ready. Rough and ready, um, pioneer. And cutting murder. a few corners, a little bit of yeah, a few, a few, um, a few grisly, bodies, uh, grisly bodies, um, yeah. Involving gramophone parts, which was quite fun. Uh, Writing murder scenes, <laughs> great fun. <laughs> One bit that I really enjoyed um, comes right at the end of the book, almost the final page, um, and it's uh, it's when Max, your hero, yeah. ends up, and I think he's working with Fred Geisberg. Isn't I do. He? The I, real. I, I, I meld. I merge my fiction with 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 the person we've been talking about for the last seven episodes. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, and it's great, and they're and they're looking at a house in St John's Wood that they have an idea that they might turn it into a, a recording studio. Quite a famous. I, I wonder what that one could studio. be. Yes. No, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was. I, I thought it was a terrific book, and I thought the ending was great. That made me really smile. Um, thank you, Dave. And uh, thank you for doing this. And and I I think I I consider this like a gateway drug into <laughs> into learning about the world hopefully our podcast is a little a bit of a ga- gateway it, drug as well but it's such a it's it's a proper thriller and it's 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 a fascinating world and you've really uh, evoked particularly london I, I i really did you know they're, they're drinking in the nelgwyn pub off the strand well, i drink in the nelgwyn pub, pub it's and a it's a lovely it's it? a great proper old victorian pub so thank you for writing well, this. not at all thank it you needed and writing get your Gateway drugs of me. Yeah, the industry of human happiness available at all good bookshops and all bad bookshops probably. Certainly available on Amazon. So please try it. And thank you very much for coming on. Cheers, Dave. This is the sound of the hound. Thank you for listening to this episode of the sound of the hound. If you'd like to see the show notes, which contain links to some of the things we've been talking about in this episode please go to thesoundofthehound.com. Select podcasts when you're there and you'll find a page of notes for this episode. Sound of the Hound is a podcast from the EMI Archive Trust. Many of the recordings and artefacts we talk about in this series of podcasts are housed by the Trust. If you'd like to know more about the EMI Archive Trust, go to emiarchivetrust.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave us a review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be much appreciated. Thank you.